0: This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in July of last year. Welcome to Access Utah, Tom Williams. For much of a year, writer Sebastian Younger and three friends walked the railroad lines of the East Coast. It was an experiment in personal autonomy, but also in interdependence. Dodging railroad cops, sleeping under bridges, cooking over fires, and drinking from creeks and rivers, the four men forged a unique reliance on one another. In his new book, Freedom, Younger weaves uh, his account of uh, his journey, uh, together with primatology and boxing strategy, the history of labor strikes and Apache Raiders, the role of women in resistance movements, and the brutal reality of life on the Pennsylvania frontier. The book is a powerful examination of the primary desire that defines us. Uh, Sebastian Younger is a New York Times bestselling author of Tribe, War, A Death in Belmont, Fire, The Perfect Storm... Co director of the documentary film Restrepo, which was nominated for an Academy Award. He's also the winner of a Peabody Award and a National Magazine Award for reporting. He lives in New York City with his family. Sebastian Younger, uh, thanks so much for joining us for the hour.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, this is uh, the, quite the journey that you and your friends take, and then, of course, ideas of freedom uh, woven in here along with some history. Uh, first question is why, why railroad? You, you, uh, you guys walked the railroad for some four hundred miles.
1: Yeah, I mean there are these interesting swaths of no man's land that um, people are sort of generally unaware of that just crisscross the United States, and um, you know it really is on pretty much unmonitored. Uh, it's private property; it belongs to the freight companies, but there's no police out there. There's very few people, and you can kind of do what you want. And that's not true if you walk along the roadways, and and it also. Um, it's sort of a more philosophical level like it goes straight through the middle of everything roads go around things our railroad lines go right through the ghettos right through the factories the farms the wilderness the, everything the rich suburbs everything we wanted to, you know we wanted to encounter america in the most unfiltered sort of raw way possible and you know unavoidably encounter ourselves as as well in in those ways and so the railroad line seemed like that was it was our ticket
0: so, uh, where would you start? Where did you end? what What was the What was the route?
1: Uh, we we got off at Union. We took the train down from New York City, where I live, and we got off at Union Station in Washington, D.C., and turned around and started heading back up the track. And we we walked up the East Coast uh, to Philadelphia uh, along the railroad line. Sometimes we're on surface roads; it was sort of unavoidable at at times. Um, and, uh, and then we wheeled west and headed for Pittsburgh and crossed the, the length of Pennsylvania. This, you know, this journey took, um, we did it off and on for about a year. Uh, so we would walk 50 or 100 miles at a time and then give it a break and then resume where we'd left off. And uh, so it was, it, was in, it was in chunks. So we, we were able to walk in every season in incredible heat waves, unbelievable cold in central Pennsylvania in the middle of the winter. Uh, we really got to sort of experience it all.
0: You talk about walking uh, in the book. You talk about cadence. Uh, tell me about that. You you get up to a certain cadence, you uh, it's it's better, I guess, even with a heavy pack.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were carrying 60, 70 pounds. We were carrying everything we needed to, um, you know, keep ourselves comfortable and alive out there. When we ran out of food, we'd walk through a town and buy more food and keep going. Yeah, you know, we cooked over campfires and got our water out of creeks, and we're sort of living off the land but on the margins of society right this isn't wilderness uh we were on the margins of society and uh so we had to one of our primary duties was to stay out of sight of of the police because they will come looking for you if you're out there it's illegal at one point they were looking for us with a helicopter and uh but we you know we'd all been in a lot of combat and uh so that we you know that sort of challenge was sort of interesting to us so so we we called it high speed vagrancy right we moved <laughs> 10, 15, 20 miles a day, and you know you're—it's hard work carrying that much weight and moving that much. And you have to kind of trick your mind. Your, your the enemy, your enemy is your your own mind. Your body, your body is incredibly resilient and strong, and will—I mean—if you're in fairly good shape—and will kind of do what it's asked um, all day long if necessary, and way beyond the point of where you think you, what you can do, you know. Um, but it's the mind that wants to give up. And so what What we found in terms of cadence was that there were times when we were rolling along, and sometimes it was late in the day when we were tired, where we'd all just hit this sort of stride. And it almost was like walking became effortless. And you could go another 10 miles like that and not really feel it. And it, I would know that I was in cadence uh, when stopping looked unappealing, when the thing that felt the most... Appealing and, and in some ways, restful was uh, was continuing to walk, and and that stopping was the thing we didn't want to do. And that's how you know you're in cages. Eventually, your body, you know, like your body gives out, and with us, it did that plenty. Uh,
0: So you, um, I'm trying to recall, you you met a gentleman walking. He'd walked like. three miles he was i don't He'd know, he purchased a turtle or something am i getting this right and you you muse uh he didn't have a car right you muse is this is yeah, this I, gentleman uh, more free uh, or the person who's making payments well, on a car right
1: well, yeah right i mean there's a you know, long, you know there's a long-standing debate about do material possessions liberate you or enslave you uh um, a whole, a whole, do they own you or do you own them and you know, we this was on our first day. Actually, it was on the outskirts of D.C. in sort of a you know sort of poor, poorish neighborhood, and uh, we we met this guy, an African American guy, who was holding a box turtle. He'd found it in a creek, and he was uh, he was walking to a pet store to sell it. And I don't know what you can sell a box turtle for. I don't know ten bucks. I don't know twenty bucks. Something like that, right? And and you know, he said, "Yeah, it's a three mile walk," and you know, so six miles round trip. And I just thought, you know, you know. Ten, five miles, ten miles down the road was this booming city filled with people in in you know men in suits and ties in offices and women you know working away, you know earning you know often earning a fair amount of money for their for their high level work, but really completely um obligated to a timetable that they're you know that someone else is setting. and uh, you know this guy obviously doesn't have much money. he's selling a box turtle. he's walking six miles to do it. But his day is his own, and so to me, it's an open question. Like, you know, which person is more free? And of course, that depends on how you define freedom, and that's an eternal debate. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't dare, you know, weigh in on that. I think, I think, you know, in some ways, both forms of freedom are, are valid and important.
0: And of course, we would talk about freedom of the, through the discussion. I want to pause here and talk about the, the railroads and the dangers. You, boy, you described some of these things I hadn't even thought about. That'll probably keep me off the tracks, but. Um, uh i wonder if you talk about that uh, j- just uh, maybe first just the the experience of uh, you know having a having a train bear down on you obviously you gentlemen went off the tracks into into this into the woods or something when the train would come
1: yeah and you know we got very tuned in up out, out there tuned into our environment which is something that reminded us all i think of combat um so it's illegal. So the engineers, if they see people along the the tracks, and they, 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 you know, often we weren't on the tie, railroad ties themselves. We were on the right of way, the maintenance roads, the gravel maintenance roads that run parallel to the track, or sometimes they're just dirt bike trails or whatever. So, but if they see you within that, uh, you know, private, basically private property, uh, they'll call you in, and the cops will send a patrol car. Uh, looking for you, and so so it was very important when we heard a train coming to, to just step into the underbrush so they wouldn't see us wouldn't call us in and um the the freight trains didn't go that fast. they were going sixty or seventy you know they're a mile long and they're enormously heavy and and you know they take a mile to stop you know like uh, they're they're very formidable things, but the passenger trains are a lot lighter and they go a lot faster. And they will come out of nowhere and slam by you before you even know it. And so we got, and you can't really hear them early enough to get out of the way. I mean, to get out of sight. And, but we started to get this feeling like we could sense them coming. And, and I don't know what we were picking up on. I mean, I'm sure there's some physical phenomenon that we were picking up on but we didn't we didn't consciously know what it was and we would just get this feeling like the air was vibrating or something and we'd look at each other like oh a train coming and we'd dive into the underbrush and and it would just slam by at 120 or whatever they do and um, so it became very important to sort of like and of course it's a safety issue you don't want to be anywhere near something that heavy going that fast. Um, but also, we you know we were trying to avoid the authorities, and so it it meant we had to be like really on top of our game all the time.
0: Yeah, the, the way you describe it, just a, a tremendous experience. Just the air displacement on, especially a passenger train coming that fast. Do uh, you also say that you know that metal strapping comes loose and it's dangling out and it could could cut you in half of your near enough, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people get killed on the railroad lines because they've been drinking or whatever, their minds are altered in some way or they're suicidal or you know, they're just walking along, you know, with headphones on listening to music and and they're not, you know, they're not switched on, right? They're not paying attention. Um, you know, that was not us, obviously. Um, but so I thought we were pretty safe, but then I, you know, I did a little research later and I realized, "Oh my god, all kinds of things happen." And so they have they'll have these lashings that tie down loads of timber and stuff. And sometimes those lashings come loose, and they're, just, they're flailing along on the side of the train as it's going by at 70 miles an hour. And, of course, if that hit you, they'd cut you in half. And I talked to one guy who said that there was an engineer at the front of the train uh, who um, saw an oncoming train in the, on the, in the adjacent track, and a load of timber had come loose, and one huge log was perpendicular to the train, um, and coming, you know, at a combined speed of 140 between the two trains, you know, coming towards each other, and he just had time to drop to the floor of the uh, at the front at the front of the train, um, and and the log crashed into where he had been standing a moment before. It was, it was like he had ducked a punch in a boxing match. Uh, and he survived right, but so things like that can happen and it's a you know it's a it's an industrial environment thing there's a lot of huge forces at work, and of course invariably you know people get killed and in the building of the railroad lines, tens of thousands of people were killed and and in the early days of railroads with steam engines, there were these horrific accidents where people would die a hundred at a time, you know scalded to death when the when the steam engine exploded and and they'd run off a trestle because the tracks weren't well maintained, you know, whatever, I mean, just horrific accidents. They were sort of the the, the plane crashes of the 1800s, basically, where people would die by the scores.
0: You have said that uh, in your book you didn't want to concentrate so much on yourself and your companions. You wanted to make America the, you know, the, the central character. Uh, And this is a unique view of America, right? At least that uh, 400-mile stretch. What what are some things that uh, impressed you as you saw America from this vantage point?
1: Yeah, I didn't identify us by name. I spoke collectively uh, of we, uh, or I would say, you know, one of us went and got some firewood or whatever. Uh, You know, we had to take care of all of our collective needs together, and part of being, you know, it was a form of freedom. I should just stop and say, like, being out there, it was hard work. But as I say in the book, most nights we were the only people who knew where we were, and that is a form of freedom. But it required a com- just about complete allegiance to the needs of the group. So we were free from society, but we were completely dependent on one another uh, and obligated to one another for our basic needs. And so, but I didn't want to focus on us individually. So I wanted to really focus on America and on the topic of freedom and historically in the last ten thousand years how humans have maintained their autonomy in the face of more powerful foes. Like, how do we how do we do that? We're unique as a species in our ability to do it. Um, but, you know, what did I find about America? Um, the poor communities were incredibly welcoming of people that basically look homeless. I mean, I don't know what we looked like to them, but it wasn't anything particularly good, you know, like four ragged guys and a dog trudging along. Uh, you know, sometimes we deviate into the communities. And like in you know, Baltimore, we you know, you can't. Walked the railroad lines right through the center of Baltimore. We were on the surface roads, and we went through a pretty tough neighborhood called called Oliver. And uh, you know, high high crime, high drug, you know, like pretty intense place. And uh, you know, people were just people were just amazing. You know, and it was really in those sort of wealthier communities, like the kind that I actually grew up in outside of Boston, where people were way more suspicious, more likely to call the cops on us. Um, it was just sort of interesting to see America from that perspective. And uh, I was always more comfortable. In the poorer communities, and the the rural communities, the people you know in rural Pennsylvania could be incredibly kind, um, but they also you know there was a lot of gunfire. Like it was a it was a sort of bracing environment. You know, we passed a sign that said you know private property. You know federal authorities not allowed we will defend this land by any means necessary, and it was sort of nailed to a tree as a warning to the feds, you know so there were these you know people were i feel like they're in some ways in rural pennsylvania their their fists were up, you know like they were very, very independently thinking people, and i really I really like them uh but you know it you definitely felt like, all right, we got to be a little careful here, we're outsiders we don't people don't know what we're doing, like we got to be a little careful here
0: yeah just parenthetically you said uh, since you're on you know since it's illegal uh to be in the, in the in this railroad right away uh people were either very friendly or very guarded uh you know wor- a wariness i guess
1: yeah i mean everyone who's on there is also breaking the law and they're all pretty marginal people uh, um and we were marginal by choice, right? This was a, was a journey for us, a trek, and a, and a you know, a, a project that we wanted to do. But, but everyone else out there, you know, mostly were they were out there because things weren't going so well in their lives. And the railroads are the railroad rights of way are, as I say, unmonitored and, and a refuge of sorts, um, a hiding place of sorts. And you can kind of take care of yourself out there a little bit. We, you know, we met you know, one guy was walking along, and he had a. Um, uh, uh a, a piece of steel in his hand a steel rod and uh and with a little fork at the end and he you know he had a gun in his back pocket and you know he was very wary of us he had a revolver and uh and it was a sort of a tense encounter just cuz i didn't know what he was going to do and he was extremely threatened by you know four people in, in you know this deserted area and and you know we talked our way through that and it was okay but but i you know i asked him just making conversation I was like, what's that in your hand? He said, it's my snake iron. And what he did was he, he would capture snakes. I imagine he sold them. Uh, and uh, he pinned them to the ground with his snake iron and put them in a sack. Uh, so there was people out there like that. and So they were, you know, everyone, you know, there's no authorities out there. And everyone was, like, pretty cautious with you. They were either polite or guarded or whatever. Everyone was feeling each other out.
0: Uh, let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back with Sebastian Younger. He's New York Times bestselling author of War and uh, Tribe and uh, uh, Death in Belmont, Perfect Storm. Uh, he is winner of a Peabody Award and National Magazine Award for reporting. Uh, he's uh, talking with us about his latest book called Freedom, and we'll have more following this break. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time, Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is best-selling author Sebastian Younger. Uh, For much of a year, uh, he and three friends walked the railroad lines of the East Coast. Uh, It was an experiment in personal autonomy, also interdependence. They dodged railroad cops, slept under bridges, uh, cooked over fires, drank from creeks and rivers. And in his new book, Freedom... Uh, Sebastian Younger weaves his account of this journey together with primatology and boxing strategy, history of labor strikes and Apache raiders, the role of women in resistance movements, and brutal reality of life on the Pennsylvania frontier. Um, I want to get into some of those things, uh, Sebastian Younger. Uh, I want to maybe have you tell this uh, story. Um, you were walking through Chester, Pennsylvania, which you say was a small but dangerous town. Uh, recently, tripled the murder rate nearby Philadelphia. Uh, tell us that you you encountered a gentleman, I guess, sitting on his front porch.
1: Yeah, it, you know, it's a primarily African American community. Um, a lot of drugs there. Um, big city problems, like a astronomical murder rate. And you know, I don't think necessarily we would have been uh, that the you know targeted in any way. Uh, you know, walking through. But you know, it was a, it was a complicated kind of broken town and. Uh, you know, we passed this guy. It was a nice fall day. We were walking on the road, and and we passed this guy drinking a beer on his front porch. And and you know, we would ask people just what they thought about America sometimes, just to get a. We we're just taking a sort of informal census of what people think of their country. Uh, it's such an amazing country, and and you know, we have you know we have some pretty big problems to solve. And and so I, I said, what do you what do you like best about this country? And. uh he had a big smile on his face, you know, he's a very friendly guy, and he said, freedom, it's a free country. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat, I'm pretty liberal, and all my liberal friends are, you know, definitely of the sort of mindset that the kind of social and economic problems in a town like Chester mean, mean that anyone who's living there, anyone certainly anyone African-American who's living there is not a free person, and that their freedom is greatly diminished by their, their circumstances, their uh, particularly economic circumstances and here was this guy who was like no man it's a free country and that's what's so beautiful about this place and I, you know i just um you know to me that was really moving and not to diminish the real very real problems in that town which i'm sure he was quite realistic about uh, but in his mind like this was the beauty of america it's a free country and uh, you know we we have to strive for it to be free and fair, and egalitarian, and you know, make sure everyone has the same the same starting line. I mean, maybe not the same finish line, but the same starting line at least. Uh, you know, I mean that's the you know that's the challenge in this country. But but um, but I was very moved that that was foremost in his mind. And you know, my father grew up in Spain. He fled fascism when he was um, 12 years old, I think. Uh, uh, in 1936, when Franco came into France, and then they fled France when the Nazis came in, and he came to this country because, as he said, it would never, it would, it would democracy would always survive; it would, fascism would never come to this country. You know, and, and thus far, he's been right. And so, you know, my father was a theoretical physicist. He spoke with an accent. He grew up in Europe. He and this African American gentleman on his porch in Chester, the capital of America, at one point. You know, I feel like that. You know, they they valued the same thing about America extraordinary right like that just like gladdened my heart
0: what uh what do you think your father would have thought what do you think uh about that uh, you know democracy would always survive in america especially given you know recent events uh, january 6th
1: well it did survive you know and um I, you know I, don't, I, I mean politics are getting complicated and puzzling right now and there seems to be a a, a pension a propensity for for you know, politicians who are knowingly, knowingly saying things that aren't true, right? And which is, I mean, it's like a doctor tell, lying to you, like, or, or, I mean, these are trusted people, right? And it was like the, way, the, guy, the weather guy, the guy in the weather report lying to you and knowing it's going to rain and telling you it's going to be sunny. Like when politicians lie about things that knowingly lie, they are committing, in in, in some way, in in my opinion, a kind of sin. I sort of like, um. Original sin against the the ideals of democracy, and um, and and there's there's quite a lot of that going on right now. You know, the the, the entire GOP leadership um, confirmed the fairness of the election in 2020. Uh, William B- Bill Barr, uh, Bill Barr, Attorney General Bill Barr confirmed it. Um, a host of Republican judges and and election officials affirmed the election, and finally, Vice President Mike Pence affirmed it. And now many people in the GOP are saying that the election was stolen. And I I'm like, what are you doing? Like you're playing with fire. You're going to destroy this country because it's all based on the idea that we respect the results of elections. And uh, and I said you know, they're really they're spinning the they're the in the they're spinning the drum on the revolver. We're kind of they're kind of playing Russian roulette with this country. And and you know, I have plenty of grievances against the Democrats as well. So don't don't get me wrong here. Like I'm. Uh, I'm, you know, equal opportunity critic here. But, but you know, that, that is a very dangerous game that we seem to be playing right now. And I, I, I do worry about it. If my father were alive, I think he would be worrying about it as well.
0: Mm. Um, I was reading, uh, you did an interview uh, with the Guardian newspaper. Uh, this struck me. You say, I like having access to both liberals and conservatives. You just said you're a Democrat, but uh, liberals and sc- conservatives, I guess, both respond to you and read you. I guess conservatives, uh, because of your war reporting, I don't know. That's, that's well,
1: yeah, I suppose. I mean, I, you know, I'm, just, I'm, I'm completely nonpartisan in my analysis, and I think people trust me for that. And um, so, I, you know, for, for some reason, I have the ear of both. And, and I watch, you know, with some satisfaction, I watch the, extru- the sort of like nutjob extremists on both in both parties, Denounce me and and get upset with me when I say something that's true, and that's pretty hilarious to watch that happen. And so, you know, with it, when I'm when I'm offending the, the the sort of lunatic fringe in the right wing and in the right, left wing equally, you know, I feel like I'm right on I'm right on target. Uh, but I think the majority of people who have occasion to hear me or to read me, you know, trust that I'm I'm nonpartisan. And you know, if if the if the you know I've voted Democratic my whole life, but if the Democrats were doing anything equivalent to what the Republicans seem to be doing right now with the basic premises of our democracy, I would be relentless in my critique of them. I mean, I'd be really vicious about it, maybe even more so than I am with the GOP, because they're my own people. And it really is up to all of us to clean our own house. And I wish the GOP would start doing that, and I wish the Democrats would do it as well, that their, their hands are hardly clean.
0: Well, we're on uh, the current political situation, and the, uh, I want to talk just briefly, parenthetically, about the the political tone. Uh, you you uh, ruminate, you think in uh, the I think previous book, tribe, but you you uh, you you talk about the effect of contempt, of that tone, of that that emotion, uh, the corrosive effect that that can can have. Um, I wonder if you you know think about that in relation to our politics today.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's not too big a leap, right? Like, I mean, um, um, marriage counselors, therapists know that, you know, couples can come in with all kinds of problems, fighting constantly, blah, 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 but they love each other and they respect each other and those marriages are savable. They need work, but they're savable. And, yeah, you know, it's the sort of received wisdom in that, in the therapeutic community that when, when couples come in and they speak with contempt about each other, you don't even deserve to be with me, you know, that kind of tone, right? Um that the marriage is probably doomed, and that tone of contempt has started to creep into American politics. It really ramped up after President Obama was elected. I think. I think that really started to divide the country. I mean, not through any, in my opinion, not through any fault of his own. I think it just raised some like profound questions about. Um, I mean, his Americanness was questioned. Right? Absurdly, he was an American citizen, but it was questioned, and. Uh, so, what started to happen was this whole tenor of like who deserves who's a real American and who is a kind of a fake American and shouldn't get to vote and shouldn't get to be president, et cetera, et cetera and that was when the contempt started to creep in and um you know as I say in my book, you know we were along the lines of one, railroad lines at one point, and this freight train came by, which is a huge amount of speed and energy you know in the darkness through the woods you know and and I just sort of ruminated. I was like, what would it talk, take to stop something like that you know, in its tracks, right? Like just dead stop. And what kind of massive wall would you have to build to stop something like that? And my, my buddy, uh, Brendan, said, very clever, very clever guy, right? Like he, he said the obvious. He was like, no, man, you wouldn't need a massive wall. You just need another train, the same size, going the same speed, in the opposite direction on the same track and they would just pile into each other and they both stop instantly. I was like, oh my God, what a great metaphor for America. Like nothing can stop us. Like this country is way too powerful and wealthy for any other country to to start to destroy us. The only thing that could just destroy us is us ourselves. Like us running into ourselves. And you know, I think in the last, you know, fifteen years or so we've been doing that increasingly and uh, you know, it's really time for some nonpartisan people to start voting in the center and bringing some sanity back to the political discourse.
0: Uh, do you think that can happen? Do you have hope that'll happen?
1: Yeah, I, I'm extremely optimistic that that'll happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just talked to a, a former Navy SEAL who set, has set out to, um, has created a, a political action committee to fund centrist candidates. Um, that will vote as a block within the Senate and keep either party from enacting uh, some silly agenda that just furthers their own political interests. I'm extremely confident that it will happen.
0: If you just joined us, we're talking with Sebastian Younger, a best-selling author, most recently of Freedom, in which he and uh, some friends uh, take a uh, 400-mile journey walking uh, along the railroad tracks uh, up the East Coast and then uh, west through Pennsylvania. Um, and he uh, ruminates on uh, the meaning of freedom. Of course, many, many different uh, meanings of, of that word. Um, let's see. So, I want to read this, and this is this is a theme in the book. And if you talk, if you think about freedom, there are some uh, you might call contradictions, right? S- uh, so, I'll just read this. Uh, Sebastian Younger says, "There's no freedom without safety, and no safety without the protection of a group." which demands allegiance to its norms. And uh, then here's another uh, quote. The inside joke about freedom is that you're always trading obedience to one thing for obedience to another. There's always tension between community and freedom, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, humans don't survive alone in nature. They die almost immediately. Uh, we're social privates. We get our safety um, and eventually our affluence from being part of a group. And um, that has been true. um for hundreds of thousands of years. And so the the you know the uh, sort of epitome of what we think of as sort of free people were the um uh, were the settlers that streamed into western Pennsylvania along the Juniata River, which we walked along along the railroad line, the only river that trends east-west in Pennsylvania. It cuts through the mountains, and so these these very brave settlers and desperate settlers came with their families, you know, and overloaded wagons, you know, to settle in what was Indian territory. Very dangerous place, right? So they were when they went out there. they were in the wilderness, and they were completely uncontrolled by the colonial government or the American government. They were uh, unreachable by the church and all these sort of like mechanisms of state that control people's lives. You have to answer to. They were totally unreachable by those things, right? Um, but they were in huge amount of danger the native people didn't want them there and there were bloody bloody wars along the um you know in the in, in in these areas and uh and so what they had to do was band together for mutual defense and basically if you were an adult male i mean everyone was expected to pitch in including children during you know a uh, you know a bad time with the natives um but the um you know if you were an adult male you were expected to carry a rifle and a scalping knife and a tomahawk at all times because these attacks could come at any moment and you were expected to literally give your life defending the community and if you were not willing to do that you were not wanted and so yeah they expect, you know they had a, they had freedom from government control but you never you know the, the further the further away you get from the government the more danger you're in and among other things, the government provides security the more danger you're in and then you need the people around you to try to maintain your safety and if you're not safe you're not free I'm sorry like that's the base the baseline for freedom is is like that you can um, you can defend yourself against someone who would want to kill you or enslave you
0: yeah it's, it's, uh, I was interested reading about that it's um you know very powerful norms right in, in that society you're 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 going west to I guess gained this this very powerful American idea of freedom, right? But if you're not carrying right. a gun, uh, <laughs> you're going to be shunned, right?
1: Yeah, and not, I mean not only carrying a gun, but willing to use it and willing to give your life defending uh, defending the community that you know, you're connected to. And you know these were people who were living in you know remote farms, log cabins, you know, but they would when there was a, a sort of uh, a, a, a basically a border war with the with the native tribes of that area. They would all flee to the safety of a stockade, a certain a common area, and you know these are very rough affairs. They're just logs driven into the ground, you know, with loopholes to shoot through, and and uh, and you were expected to fight to the death to, to 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 defend those things. And and if you weren't willing, you were you were not wanted in the community and and I mean you know I looked I looked at a at a, a street gang in Chicago in the in the mid 1960s in the Lawndale section of Chicago which was very very violent at the time and there were a lot of uh, pretty predatory street gangs in in the surrounding areas and I looked at this one group was formed called the Vice Lords that were formed in order to protect the local young African American men of of that area from these other predatory groups they were sort of preying on them and, and beating them up and robbing them and killing them and they were called the vice lords and um, they were effective like they were able to control territory and defend each other's safety but the criterion the main criterion for being a vice lord was that if another vice lord was in trouble uh, was in a fight and outnumbered that you ran towards him to help no matter how bad the odds were and if you didn't if you failed to to help your brother in his time of need right in a street fight, if you went the other way, you were just, by definition, not a vice lord. And so they didn't punish you, right? They just put you in a car and drove you to the middle of the rival gang's territory and made you get out of the car and walk home. And, of course, you wouldn't make it, right? And so that's the, you know, you, we, you know, the, the, the group will protect you, but that means that you have to protect the group no matter what. Is that freedom or not? You know, you tell me. It's in the eye of the beholder
0: you uh you dedicate this book to your to your beloved family say who taught me the true meaning of freedom you, and you've talked about that, that uh, you you know in a family you give up some freedom but you but you you know you gain uh some very precious things
1: yeah and there's different um of course there's different Meanings to the word. I talked to a guy who had spent decades in prison, and I asked him if it was possible to be more free in prison than outside of prison. And he laughed. It was such an absurd question. He said, "Of course it's possible." He's like, "You can't be a drug addict in prison. Um, You you can't even be distracted. Like everyone out there is on their iPhones and what you know, whatever. Like distracted, not thinking about anything. Like in prison, you got nothing but time. And eventually, you're going to have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are and what you're doing in there. And then you're a free person." And not until then. And a lot of people on the outside never attain that. Well, likewise for me. I mean, I've had a very um, adventurous life that, uh, you know, I'm very pleased to have lived and grateful to have lived. And um, I came to, to parenthood, to fatherhood late in my life. I'm 59. I have a four-and-a-half-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And, one and, and, you know, they're the light of my life, and I would do anything for them. And, the, um, you know, one, um, one form of freedom is when you stop thinking about yourself. You're freed from these sort of, like, and, 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 so ego-driven desires and needs, and you're living for other people. And that's also a form of freedom, you know? And, you know, maybe not at 20, but certainly at my age it is. And so the, you know, the ultimate form of freedom for me isn't hitchhiking around the United States when I was 22, though there is that's also awesome in its own way, you know, at that age. But the ultimate freedom for me is like, oh, now something else is vastly more important to me than I am. And the liberation that comes with that is, you know, really quite beautiful.
0: Let's take another break. We'll be back with our last segment with Sebastian Younger. Uh, the latest book is called Freedom, and we'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. i Tom Williams. We're talking with the best-selling author Sebastian Younger. His latest book is called Freedom. It's out and available uh, now uh, so you recount a lot of fascinating history uh, paralleled with and uh, connected with your, your, this 400-mile journey along the railroad tracks. Um, and uh, it, one of the themes that runs uh, through the book is um, the ability of small groups to overcome uh, very large forces. Uh, of course, fr- freedom um, you know, is purchased a lot of times with, with blood. I wonder if you tell me about the Apache. You you contrast the Apache with the Pueblo people when the when the Spanish conquistadors came.
1: Yeah. So the so thank you. Yeah. So the book is divided into three sections. The three main ways that that um, sort of underdog groups have been able to maintain their autonomy in the force in the face of more powerful groups. And those three sections, those three methods are run, fight, and think. Basically, the most. The easiest thing to do is to outrun your... Just be more mobile than your oppressor. And But if you can't outrun them, you're going to have to outfight them. And if you can't outfight them, you're going to have to outthink them. And that often happens within one's own society, such as the labor movement in the United States 100 years ago or so, things like that, protest movements. So, you know, basically the, 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 there were two kinds of societies, native societies in the American Southwest. When the Spani- Spaniards show up, showed up in the late 1500s, there were the Pueblo peoples who were very materially wealthy, right? They lived in real towns on the top of mesas, um, and they had agriculture and irrigation and exquisite jewelry and pottery and ba- basketry. Uh, and then <laughs> there were the Apache, who were sort of their poor cousins, right? They were very, very mobile. They lived off the lands. They were constantly moving. They were raiders. Um, and uh, they... You would, th- And they're materially very poor, and you would think when the Spaniards showed up that the powerful, wealthy community would be the one that would last the longest, but it was, that was, it was the opposite. The Pueblo societies um, were defeated almost instantly, almost instantaneously by the Spaniards. Uh, the Apache, because they were so mobile, the warriors were expected to be able to move 70 miles a day on foot, day after day, 7-0 day after day, they could outmaneuver U.S. Cavalry in rough terrain, and the whole the whole tribe was expected to be able to move at half that rate day after day, and so they were just impossible to catch, and they maintained their autonomy uh, until almost until 1900. You know, my grandmother was born in 1900. I mean, they almost, you know, 1886, the last sort of un-, you know, quote, wild Apache was, you know, finally sort of cornered and surrendered. Uh, Geronimo was his name. We all know that name. So, um, so So running being mobile is one form of maintaining your autonomy, and there's this ancient split in human society that goes back ten thousand years between the societies that decided to be sort of mobile and self governing and uh and materially poorer, and the agriculturalists that started building cities and um, conducting widespread agriculture around ten thousand years ago in mesopotamia and of course they they were materially rich. They had the freedom of being um, buffering themselves by their huge stores of grain from the bakeries of starvation and the weather and all that stuff. But they were all invariably under sort of like tyrannical rulers that had huge armies, and so that's the basic that's the ancient human split, and and it lasted surprisingly long into modern history, um, but. One of the interesting things about humans is we're the only mammal where a smaller individual or a, or, or a smaller group can defeat a larger one. So I have these examples of uh, occasions such as the Montenegrins in, in this wild mountain tribe in Montenegro in the early 1600s. They were invaded by the Ottoman Empire, the, the most powerful military force in the world at the time. You know, they were invaded over and over again the Ottomans wanted to make the Montenegrins a kind of vassal state and the Montenegrins just refused to, to pay vassal tribute and so they got invaded and they were out the Montenegrins were outnumbered 12 to one by the Ottomans and each time they just handed them their hat right and and the, and the Ottomans eventually gave up trying to trying to control that area um, and uh, so the Seminole have a similar history in the United States they, they never had a peace treaty with the US government they, the u.s Military was defeated multiple times in Central Florida in the swamps of Central Florida in the 1800s. They eventually gave up. The Seminologists have lived in autonomous existence ever since. Um, so, it uh, the, the ability of in humans uh, to, to defeat a larger foe is unique to us. And what I would argue is that without that, freedom really wouldn't be possible. I mean, the Americans what could not have defeated the British in 1776. The Irish in 1916 during the Easter Rising and the, the, the events that, uh, that followed could not have defeated the British Empire. You know, 50 miles off their coast, they would have been crushed. And, but that's not what happened, and that's not what history looks like.
0: Uh, just a few pages later, this really struck me and illustrates some things we've been talking about. I wonder if you could tell us briefly about, uh, I think his name was Ishii. He's the last of his tribe.
1: Yeah, so so there were these sort of remnant wild groups um, uh, of Native peoples that, that lasted quite long into the 1800s. And the last the last of them were the Yahi in northern California around Mount Lawson. Very very tough, rough, uh, rough terrain, um, and they the settlers around that area sort of knew that there were some wild people up there, but they you know they never quite saw them you know they just was some set they'd see campfires and arrows you know like uh arrowheads laying around and things like that so they knew there were people up there but it wasn't until the early 1900s um was it 1911 i think i can't remember yeah. now i actually can't remember the exact date anyway yeah, after 1900 so. ishii came down out of the mountains and gave himself up and he was the last of the yahi and he had lived up there by himself you know just with his family for years and years and then By just by himself, everyone else died out, and just by himself for two years. And and after that, he just couldn't take it. He couldn't do it physically or or emotionally, and he he gave himself up expecting to be killed, maybe even hoping he would be killed. And uh, instead, he was taken in by an anthropologist at UC Berkeley, and he was given a job as a custodian in the anthropology department, and but he all what he was really doing was teaching the anthropologists and the students how to chip arrowheads, and how to make arrows and bows, and how to hunt rabbit and deer, and make a fire without matches, and all these, like, Stone Age skills that, that his people had developed and, and depended on for eons. Um, and he died several years later in his late 50s. Uh, the last thing he said as he was dying, he said, um, he said, you stay, I go. And mm-hmm. he did. He left.
0: Yeah. I just want to read this. Uh, you write that he was, talking about Ishii, he was by some definitions the last completely free person in North America, and it bears noting that even with his lifetime of wilderness skills, Ishii could not physically and emotionally keep himself alive without the help of others, illustrating that tension between yeah, community and, and freedom.
1: Yeah, we're, so, we're a social species, you know, there's no way around it, and um, so the question of freedom you know, really what it means is which group do you feel comfortable giving your freedom up to? Because you will do it with somebody, right? Or you're dead. I mean, or you're Ishii, and you'll, you may, might make it a year or two in the wilderness. And um, so that's where, you know, as Americans, we have collectively decided to uh, abide by the norms that the American government decides are wise and will keep us all safe and relatively you know, you know, relatively affluent, you know, and, you, know, relative, you know, relative to the rest of the world. Um, and luckily in a democracy, you know, the, the government overreaches all the time, of course, right? And I mean, the government is us. It's not like it's us versus the government. The government is us, and we overreach all the time. But luckily in a democracy, there's, um, there's recourse. There's the courts and there's the ballot box, and that's how things are sorted out in a, in a democracy, which is a very profound form of freedom.
0: We just have uh, two or three minutes left. I, I just wanted to, to get, get this in uh, on, under the uh, section Think. And you mentioned this briefly, uh, British versus the Irish, right? Uh, Easter upri- Easter, yeah. Easter Rising. Um, this struck me. You say in the long run, early failure is probably just as great a generator of freedom as early success. Uh, and you, you give the example of the you know, Easter Rising.
1: Yeah, the, the I mean, the, you know, the sort of... <clears throat> The empires, right? The the the, the larger sort of mega states that um, have been around and controlled much of human events for, for thousands of years. Um, you know, they bring a lot to the party, right? I mean, they give huge, you know massive organized armies and you know resources and all this stuff. And so, you know, invariably when the U.S. Um, Entered Afghanistan in 2001. You know, the, I mean, I was there. I was watching it. The victory was, was almost absolute and uh, pretty much immediate against the Taliban, right? And and likewise in Ireland with the Brits in 1916, and you know, the American Revolution didn't go very well. I mean, most of the American Revolution was a series of defeats until the very end, and we sort of pulled it up. You know, we sort of pulled it off. And so, you know, my point is that you know, initial failure doesn't really isn't a predictor of what's going to happen in the long run. And basically, the smaller force. The advantage that they have, I mean, they're smaller and they're weaker, and that's a disadvantage. But the advantage that they do have is that being smaller and weaker, they're more, more mobile and probably more resilient. And they're certainly not spending the kinds of resources on the fight that the empire is spending. And so the Taliban could have basically fought us indefinitely uh, as an economic matter, uh, they, they, they could have sustained that level of effort. For another 20 years, 100 years, whatever, I, indefinitely, it became part of their li- part of their lives, part of their society. I mean, of course, the United States. I mean, no nation is wealthy enough to conduct a, a war, um, you know, 10,000 miles away overseas, for decade after decade after decade. We just burned through more resources than they did, and eventually, we had to pull the plug. We were never defeated, but we failed to defeat them definitively, and so we left on their terms.
0: Just have about two minutes left. I'm and I'm definitely burying at least a lead here, but uh, I think this really gets onto you the the book you're working on right now. But you told the Guardian newspaper you you almost died early last year.
1: Yeah, I had. I'm um, in really. I've always been in very good health. I was an athlete when I was young. Um, I'm I'm very very active and never gave two thoughts about my health. And I had an undiagnosed abdominal aneurysm in my pancreatic artery a ballooning out of the artery and it was for congenital reasons right this wasn't a health issue this was i had a sort of congenital oddity in my abdomen that created this aneurysm asymptomatic undiagnosed and it ruptured without warning about a year ago and um, and this is a completely deadly thing i mean almost no one survives this and you know i lost 90% of my blood uh, I like it took them uh, an hour and a half to get me to the hospital, and uh, I was really, by the time... I was conscious, but it was, by the time they got me there, I was in this sort of twilight zone between life and death, and um, I was confronting it, and I remember confronting death, and it was very unsettling. You uh, know, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm an atheist, and um, my dead father appeared and started trying to sort of comfort me, and... Um, and they cut a they cut you know cut a hole in my neck and got a line into into my neck and started giving me they gave me ten units of blood and they saved me, um, and uh, so I'm going to write a book about called Pulse, Pulse about um, what 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 keeps us alive, why we're alive, and and what what seems to happen when we die. The near death experience that I had is very very common to see, the you know beloved dead people that that, that appear and, and and interact with people who are dying, you either send them back or, or, or not, but... but um, I'm very puzzled. As a rationalist, my father was a physicist, right? I mean, as a complete rationalist, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by why there's such um, a commonality of experience in dying people. Like I don't quite understand why that would be, and I, I want to understand the mechanism. They can't don't seem to be able to explain it through neurochemicals. Um, there really is kind of a mystery about why, why this happens, and you know some people are religious and to them it's obvious that that doesn't really satisfy me as an answer, intellectually as an answer
0: well we'll look forward to that to that next book in the meantime the the latest book is freedom and uh, sebastian younger has uh, joined us uh, thank you so much appreciate the visit
1: oh my pleasure i really enjoyed it thank you
0: thank you so much uh, and thanks everyone for listening to access utah